Welcome to JLab, a podcast from the Civic Journalism Lab, a forum for professional, student, and community journalists in the northeast of England to meet, learn, and collaborate. It's supported by Newcastle University. My name is Ian Wiley, and the focus of this podcast episode is official secrets. Too often, governments use official secrecy as a means of hiding things that are embarrassing from involvement in torture or rendition to the spread of dangerous and infectious diseases. And current plans to revamp Britain's official secrets legislation risk making it easier to prosecute journalists reporting on national security issues and sources who work with them, as the National Union of Journalists has warned. Intelligence may be being manipulated to take this country to war. I could get you a copy. You're asking me to collude in a breach of the Official Secrets Act. Some call that treason. Official Secrets is also the name of a film released at the end of last year, which tells the true story of Catherine Gunn, a GCHQ whistleblower who leaked information to the Observer newspaper about a dirty tricks campaign by US and UK intelligence agencies as they tried to justify invading Iraq. If we do not go public, we would be conceding that no one can ever tell the people when their government is lying. The Civic Journalism Lab welcomed to Newcastle University Yvonne Ridley, the journalist who received those secret documents. Born in Stanley and County Durham, Yvonne worked both for the Sunday Sun here in Newcastle and its sister paper, The Journal, before going to Fleet Street. She made international headlines as chief reporter of the Sunday Express, when, in 2001, she was captured and held by the Taliban for 11 days after sneaking into Afghanistan. In recent years, she has worked with the Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh, told the story of rape victims of Assad's prisons in Syria, lectured worldwide, and worked for various Middle East media outlets. More recently, she moved to the Scottish borders, where she campaigns for the SNP, and she's just published a book of historical fiction called The Caledonians. I began our conversation by asking Yvonne what she recalled of the Catherine Gunn affair. The film uh, does touch on the, the mood of the country at the time. It was about two million turned out in London to march against the war. This was not a popular war, but the media got behind it. Um, all 178 of Rupert Murdoch's titles... They all were pro-war. In fact, I think the only newspaper that wasn't pro-war was the Daily Mirror under Piers Morgan. And that position that he took did cost him his job uh, some months down the line. And I know that Piers is a bit like Marmite, you know. <laughs> um, he, was, he was my old boss when I was at the Mirror but um, his stand against the Iraq war was um, commendable. But all of the, the newspapers in Fleet Street were pro-war. The Observer had the story for over three weeks. And before that, I had given it to the Daily Mirror, but the uh, journalist I gave it to at the Daily Mirror um, wasn't able to stand up the intelligence lines needed. And, it, you know, it's good that um, journalists do check and, and recheck. And when I was, I was actually handed that document by a second 
person in GCHQ who isn't mentioned in the film. And uh, that person handed me the, uh, the document and, um, and I needed to know that I wasn't being set up so I went and made checks as well. Um, funnily enough, Peter Beaumont um, had to have a game of tennis with his MI6 contact. Um, I took the same MI6 contact to a bar. <laughs> but they were quite shocked to be, see, you know, to be given this, uh, this document a second time for verification and um, not realizing the route it had come. They were wondering how, how many documents are out there of this. Um, so I had gone through all the checks to satisfy myself that I wasn't being set up and the GCHQ contact who handed it to me actually approached me back in the November after I'd just returned from Iraq. They said that they might be getting some interesting information. Would I be interested in doing a story? Which obviously I said yes. I wasn't guaranteed anything, but in the February that document came my way. And I do believe that if it had uh, gone out in the media, it doesn't matter whether it was the Daily Mirror or the Observer, if it had gone out in the February, then we might have had a better chance of stopping the war in Iraq, certainly Britain's involvement in the war in Iraq. But the Americans tried to say that it was fake news because uh, the Observer intern had um, used the spell checker, which is a lesson for all of us when dealing with um, American <laughs> documents. Um, happily, she went on. I can't remember her name offhand now, but she went on and had a, she's still working at the Observer and, and doing very well. Yvonne, you mentioned that um, you were contacted by another GCHQ source, and you've been very careful, haven't you, not to identify who that source is. How have you managed to do that? And did you come under pressure to, either from the paper or from elsewhere, to, to reveal that source? Yes, I mean, I codenamed uh, that person Isabel. And she has uh, so far avoided any sort of um, detection. But there, there is an interesting backstory because, um, as you saw from the film, Catherine, who, you know, make no mistake, was heroic in what she did. But um, she'd got away with it, essentially. And there was no need for her to confess. And I wished she had given Isabel and myself a heads up that that's what she was going to do. Um, Liberty contacted us and said that they would um, protect us. Isabel was overseas when, the, um, when uh, her home was uh, raided and, and uh, Catherine's home was raided. And I was in Bahrain at, um, at the time 
And uh, so I sent Martin Bright a short text saying shit hit and fan, uh, just so that he would know that um, something had uh, had happened. But the the government, and it was the government, put Catherine Gunn through one year of absolute hell. And what happened to her husband, um, especially, you know, uh, being taken to the plane, uh, that all happened and that was extremely accurate. When I handed over the document to Martin, I'm not given to high drama and I didn't go in an underground car park. I met him in a greasy spoon in, um, in Soho and uh, handed him the document. But he said, well, we'd had a few greasy spoons in the, in the film, so we needed something different. So, you know, there was a, a bit of license uh, used, but the, the film um, essentially is uh, spot on. And it makes, I've seen the second showing, I am still so bloody angry with Tony Blair and um, that government. When you received that memo, what was your what was your instinct? Your first instinct was it this is a great story, or was it this is something that could stop the war? Don't judge me. I just thought this is a brilliant story, <laughs> and uh, and and then as it sunk in, and and I checked out the authenticity as best I could. I realized that this could stop the war. Um, and I was a member of the Stop the War Coalition, but I thought, if I present this um, myself, then all the pro-war lobby will uh, definitely just criticize it and, and try and bring it down. It would make it easy for them. So I did something against all my instincts as a journalist and handed it over to somebody else to run with the story. That hurt. That really hurt because we all want to, to break our own stories. But I knew that if my name was attached anywhere near um, the story, then um, it might dilute it or divert attention away. So um, although my instincts were there as a journalist, I did rein in the, uh, the desire to, um, to break the story myself. But it was incredible to see a document where American intelligence was ordering British intelligence to spy on the United Nations, which was an illegal act within itself. And uh, nobody has ever been held to account for that either. Um, and it also showed, I thought quite revealingly, the true nature of our relationship with our American friends. Yvonne, I was just curious about um, the very first contact Catherine had downloaded the document and then she handed it to Isabel who worked with her in GCHQ 
And it was Isabel who first made contact with me. And she did it. She turned out it, um, it was an event similar to this, actually, at uh, Bristol University. And I'd just returned from Iraq. And I was uh, talking uh, to students, just telling them that as far as I could ascertain as a journalist, uh, there were no WMD in Iraq and that uh, this war was, um, was being manufactured by the Bush administration. After the meeting had ended, I went to uh, the toilets and this woman, Isabel, as I called her, appeared and she introduced herself as somebody who worked for GCHQ and would I be interested in um, any information that she came by that might help stop the war. And uh, of course, um, I said yes, but I thought, you know, this sort of thing doesn't happen, <laughs> you know, only in the movies. And so when I met her again in the February and she handed me this, uh, this document, I just thought I need to really check it out because I feel as though I'm being set up. You know, it, it, um, it's, it's just too good to be true. It was a sensational story, which of course it turned out to be. Hello. Um, you said that you didn't think that your story, that you writing it would be good to be associated with the war, but how did you pick the journalist that you chose to report on it? The first journalist I picked was somebody who I had um, met in Iraq when I was out there on the WMD story. And of course, the, the Daily Mirror was a, um, an anti-war paper. Looking back, what I should have done was probably gone to see Piers Morgan myself and, and handed it to him because I, th I think that he would have been more inclined to, to go for the story. Whereas the journalist I gave it to just wasn't able, he didn't have the contacts um, in intelligence to be able to stand it up. And I think that he was um, wary that, you know, it might not be a genuine document. And so um, after a few days, the the email came, um, came back to me and I then rang up John Sweeney who was working at the Observer and John was in Iraq and he said, um, ring Martin. I had worked at the Observer before and, and so I rang Martin Bright and gave it to Martin. I just felt of all the papers in Fleet Street, the Observer was probably the one that was most likely to, um, to have printed it. There's been quite a lot of water under the bridge since these events, and a lot of things have changed, and a lot of things have been eroded. Truth has been eroded as a concept, and the resource of newspapers and the ability to run investigations like this has been eroded. I kind of sit here and struggle to think if something like this happened now, 
well, would the government just brazen it out? And would there be anybody with the resource to investigate them if they brazened it out and it still needed investigating? Well, certainly if the document surfaced now in America, um, Trump would brazen it out and he would just say fake news and, and that, you know, he would just shout it down. And I think that we are in danger of that sort of attitude coming over to the, the UK. The great thing about the internet, which is also probably the worst thing as well, is that it belongs to um, the people. And so one way or another, it would get out. In fact, in many ways, that document would have been far easier to put out and get out on Twitter or the social networks, you know, if all else had failed. So although we are going through a very bad period for journalism, especially investigative journalism, um, the social networks and the independent um, blogs and, and media that's out there now um, is, is quite encouraging. And I think that um, newspapers or the print industry is, is really um, has seen its best years now anyway. So newspapers aren't necessarily the best platform now for breaking news. Obviously, the motive for going into Iraq for both Bush and Blair was not the weapons of mass destruction that we were told about. What is your conclusion now, looking back, as to what the actual motive was for insisting on going into Iraq and also for subverting, if you like, democracy within the UN? I mean, we know that pressure is and UN delegates are surveilled, but uh, what do you think was the true motivation? Iraq at the time uh, was all about the oil. It had, um, well, it still has um, a huge oil field. Of course, America has now found alternative um, energy resources through fracking and, and other finds. So the oil is not as important now, it's still important, but not as vitally as important as it was. And so I do think it was um, all about the oil. It was also a war which the neocons in the Bush administration really wanted. And, you know, a few years earlier, I was quite naive. I... It, if the British Prime Minister stood up and said uh, said something, then I, I would tend to believe them. Like when I was arrested and, and captured by the Taliban, uh, Bush and Blair had said, these are the most evil, brutal people in the world. And I really didn't think I would see the sunset on the first night and certainly didn't think I would survive that ordeal. But the, the truth is there are incredibly powerful people out there 
some elected, some not, who will lie and deceive and manipulate and distort. And they can only do it with a complicit or controlled media. And uh, that, that's very important to, um, to remember. Good evening, Yvonne. Um, I'd like to know, I appreciate that Catherine came forward um, and she was made an example of, but I'm curious to know if anyone else was aware of Isabel's participation in it, um, apart from yourself, even if her identity wasn't aware, you know, known. Well, after the first screening, um, I did say to Martin, uh, when he asked me what I thought of the film, I said, oh, it was great. You know, it was a timely reminder of, of Blair's shenanigans. I said, but why did you airbrush Isabel out of the story? And he said, oh, well, the focus was on Catherine. Um, and I think it was really because um, the filmmakers couldn't get to Isabel. So I think that they just thought, well, we lose her. Which I have to say, I, yeah, I'm still in touch uh, with her, and and she's quite happy about. But her her role was um, as equally heroic as Catherine's, although she was upset that Catherine had um, confessed without giving her a, a heads up. In fact, when they met for the first time in the Liberty <coughs> office. Um, she did slap Catherine over the face, but she's she's uh, she's not working for British intelligence anymore. Uh, that that's uh, given, but she's um, and she's well out of that field now. I'm just keen to finish, maybe just asking you about how, over the course of your career, we mentioned how you started out here in the Sunday Sun, how your experiences have changed you as a, as a journalist and how you view journalism? When I started off in journalism in the 1970s, I wanted to make a change. And uh, in my first week for a little weekly newspaper, it had a, a, an 8,000 circulation. It was called the Stanley News. And um, the, the first week I was there, I was sent to a woman's house, um, it, it, it was a housing issue. Her kitchen sink um, was cracked and, and leaking and she had rising damp and it was a council house. And because we featured it in the Stanley News, the council reacted, um, shows how long ago it was in the 70s, but the council reacted. And I just thought, this is amazing. You know, you shine a light on something and people get angry and, and, and you can make things happen and you can change things. And, and I, so I'm still inspired by the, um, the work I do. I do a weekly column at the moment um, in an online magazine called the Middle East Monitor. But um, once a month, near my home in Jedburgh, I work on a news magazine called The Jedi, which is um, all happy, clappy news. 
Um, anybody who wins a rosette or a jam making competition or does something uh, great, you know, they end up in the Jedi. And the community love that news magazine. And it has blanket coverage and it's just got a tiny budget, but it, um, everybody loves it. They take pride in their, their local news magazine. It belongs to them. It's very much part of the community. And that sort of grassroots journalism is so important as well because very often it's the grassroots journalists that, um, you know, are the, the canaries in the cage that spot the first uh, whiff of uh, corruption or um, something that isn't right. And uh, so I, in many ways, although most of my work um, has a global audience, in many ways I get quite a kick out of writing um, for the Jedi because of the um, the public reaction and and uh, that uh, that it that it gets. Well, shall we show our appreciation to Yvonne? You've been listening to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab in association with Newcastle University. I'm Ian Wiley. Thanks for listening.